If you will, you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5, and we'll be in verses 16 through 18. As we come now to really thank the week of Thanksgiving, we come to, and as Thanksgiving comes, the holiday season really in, in general, naturally it's a time where we kind of think about, we reflect on the things that we are thankful for. We think about things and, and things that are very good, like our friendships that we have, our, our family. Maybe we reflect and are thankful for our jobs or even some of the possessions we have or the hobbies that we enjoy. And all of these things are good things. But it's also a time where if we're not careful, we can get distracted by those good things and forget to reflect on what we should be most thankful for. Because of the gospel, we can be thankful for all of the good, but we can most importantly be thankful for the true eternal hope that we have in Christ. And so, we come to that. How, how do we show that? Not just this Thanksgiving, but also day after day. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 tells us. It says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Dear God, as we come to your word this morning, God, I pray that you, that you speak through me. God, I pray that you help us to see what you are saying to the church at Thessalonica through Paul in its original context. But God, I pray that you help us to see how this relates to our lives today, during this Thanksgiving season, during our day-to-day -day lives as we seek to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, it's a pretty short passage, yet while it is a short passage, it gives us a big call to action. We read this, these three verses, and we ask, well, how do we do that? How do we rejoice always? How do we pray without ceasing? How do we give thanks in all circumstances? As we read this passage, it's rattled off pretty quickly but they are heavy commands. How do we do it? And we're going to walk through exactly that this morning. But before jumping right in to the closing remarks of 1 Thessalonians, I do want to set it up with some context. Um, since we're not walking all the way through this book, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians near the end of his second missionary journey, around the year 50. And Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. It served as the hub of political and commercial activity there. And as was his custom upon arrival, he sought out the synagogue where he would teach the local Jews the gospel from the Old Testament, proving that Jesus of Nazareth was truly the promised Messiah. <clears throat> as he did that, some Jews believed, and soon after, Hellenistic proselytes and some wealthy women of the community were also converted. And because of their effective ministry, the Jews... They didn't like that. They had Paul and his team evicted from the city, and so they left with Silvanus and Timothy going in different directions. And then it was after they rejoined Paul in Corinth 
that he wrote 1 Thessalonians in response to Timothy's good report of the church. And the most prominent theme throughout this letter is the second coming of Jesus. In fact, it's mentioned in every chapter of the book. At Jesus' future coming, the dead in Christ will rise and be caught up along with the living to meet the Lord in the air. And unbelievers will be subject to his wrath. But Christians will be delivered from this, inheriting salvation instead. And God, who is faithful, will produce holiness in the lives of believers. And really, because of that, we are able to do what Paul calls us to do in our passage, in verses 16 through 18. Because of that, we are able to then rejoice always and pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. As we zero in a little closer on chapter 5, we see Paul's big desire for the Thessalonians was for them to be a real church. He gives them practical instructions about everyday living in the body of Christ. He's not talking about deep theological mysteries here. He's not talking about these things that are really complex to grasp. And he doesn't talk about the things that a lot of times today churches can get really worked up over. He's not talking about worship style or building architecture or what the color of the carpet's supposed to be or dress codes. What he's talking about is going right to the heart of the church. He is going right to what is most important. He's talking about its interpersonal relationships and its internal devotion. He comes down to, he's asking, how much do you love one another and how much do you love God? In our passage, Paul moves this, this discussion from the Thessalonians' interpersonal relationships with one another to their spiritual relationship with God. And he gives a series of imperatives directed at each member's personal devotion to God. We see three of these in our passage today in verses 16 through 18. And all of these imperatives are stated in the present tense, which means that it is calling for continuous action. <clears throat> because these are in the imperatives, we know that these aren't just suggestions. We know that Paul isn't just saying, hey, you know, it would be really good for you if you rejoiced always, and it would be a good idea to pray pretty frequently, and it'd be a good idea to give thanks to God in all circumstances. These aren't just suggestions. These are commands. These are commands also that we cannot live out on our own by our own power, but we can by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul gives us here, they're not these habits that would be good to practice occasionally. These are identifying characteristics that mark a Christian's life. Paul underscores this when he asserts, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We remain responsible to live the Christian life as we rest upon the faithfulness of the Lord, and we rely on His power to enable us to do that. The first thing that we see in this passage comes in verse 16, that we are to be joyful in our outlook. Verse 16 says, to rejoice always. And we can ask, I mean, that's, that's a big command in two words. What exactly does that mean? We get to the holidays, especially right now, we come to Thanksgiving, and some of us mourn because we've lost loved ones. 
there are people that are normally at that, that dinner table together that this year are not there. Or maybe it's not the first time. Maybe this has been a time of mourning for a while because we have loved ones that we miss. Outside of the holidays, we live in a world full of sin and death and pain and suffering. I know that's, that's not the most uplifting thing to say, but it's the truth. And we all, we all know it. We suffer a lot. And it's not just in the huge big things where we suffer, where it can be hard to rejoice always. It's the little things. I know, especially Lindsay knows right now, we got up to leave, uh, to go to church this morning, the car wouldn't start. It wasn't really a time where I felt like rejoicing. It wasn't a really exciting moment, and here I am, literally on my way to go and rejoice together with all of you. But it wasn't fun, so we go, we suffer through in small things, like, uh, and I have to go buy a car battery now. I'm not really looking forward to it. And so we have these things, these, ha- these things happen big and small, and we ask, we're, we're supposed to rejoice in that? But this rejoicing is not primarily in circumstances. This is not telling us that we can't hurt or mourn or feel sorrow, or I can't be frustrated that I have to buy a new car battery. This rejoicing is not in the circumstances themselves. It is rejoicing in in God and in his promises no matter what we face. Christian joy is unique because it can emerge out of the worst circumstances. And Paul states this paradox succinctly in 2 Corinthians 6.10, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Not only are we to rejoice in the happy things and the good things, but in the sorrows also. And we ask, well, how? It's because our joy is not based on circumstances. It is based in God. Circumstances change all the time. God does not. And the Thessalonian Christians had already maintained joy in suffering, as had Paul himself. They weren't going through moments of persecution or moments of difficulty and just saying, I am, I am so happy that this is happening. I'm just so happy in this right now. But they did have joy in Christ. And it's important to note, I know I say this a lot, especially when I'm, I'm teaching our youth or our young adults, but we read these things, we come, become so familiar with these passages, and sometimes we can forget the context that these are real people who faced real suffering. And Paul, as he tells them to give thanks, there were very likely many of them that did not wish to give thanks in the moments of the things that they were facing. In fact, from a human perspective, they would have every reason to not be joyful. They were facing persecution from outsiders. They were facing friction among themselves. From an earthly perspective, they have every reason to be down and discouraged. Yet in Christ, they can rejoice more and more. Because our roots are not planted in this world and its fleeting happiness. Our roots are planted in a source that cannot be depleted. In God and in his word. Still, we all know that this is hard. Christians like to talk about these biblical truths, and we should. But it is still hard to put them into practice. Given life's hurts and pains and sorrows, it is so easy 
to legitimately question how a person could possibly rejoice. But the answer is not as difficult as it may appear. You see, joy is not something that we work on. Joy is something that we live in. And we are able to experience constant joy because of the presence of God's Spirit in us as believers. Our joy is never generated from the outside in. It is always from the inside out. And Paul indicates that the benefits of salvation and relationship to the Lord always provide him opportunity for joy, even in the most challenging circumstances, because it is God who fills the believer with joy. And so we go to that question, what then, what is the key to that? What's the key to that rejoicing, to that delight? Verse 17 tells us, pray without ceasing. And verse 18 says, give thanks in everything. And so the answer seems to be that continual prayer and thanksgiving is a key to the rejoicing in God and in his word. That is what makes us fruitful. That is what sustains us through whatever we face. Not just to (coughs) make it through that thing, but to make it through while continuing to rejoice in the Lord. We see our next, our next theme here, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 tells us to be persistent in prayer. And so we see intimately related to this constant joy is persistent prayer. This is the only way to cultivate a joyful attitude in times of trial. We as Christians are to pray continually. And as you all know, we cannot bow our heads and close our eyes and fold our hands without ceasing and never, ever stop. But those are customs of prayer, not prayer itself. And there is significant, important value in a time where we shut out all of the distractions that our world offers us and we focus on God in a time of prayer. And it's important that we do that regularly. We should all do that. But we know we can't all do that 24-7. There are things that we have to do in life, like eat sometimes, or sleep, or go to work, or be a, a parent, or a husband, or a wife, or, you know, share the gospel. There are things that are important that we do. So a devoted prayer time is very important, but we can't do that without ceasing. And that's not what the word in the Greek is calling us to. It, it means continually. And that doesn't mean this formal, nonstop prayer. What it implies is constantly recurring prayer, growing out of a settled attitude of dependence on God. And so it is really important to have a planned, devoted time in prayer with God without all the distractions of life, and to do that regularly. And there is room for, and great value in, every moment of the day, fellowship with God. These go together for a truly prayerful life. Prayer is communication with God, and we can live each moment of the day in constant flowing conversation with Him, a continual personal fellowship with God. And so we are to keep on praying earnestly and passionately and expectantly. And this is huge for maintaining delight and rejoicing in God and His Word, which then leads to that how. How are we to pray? 
Because it's easy to say that prayer is important and that we should always be in this constant fellowship with God, but practically, okay, well then how do I do that? How do I put that into practice? What does it mean to pray without ceasing? And I think it means three things. <clears throat> First, it means that there is a spirit of dependence that should permeate everything that we do. And so even when we are not consciously speaking to God, we have this deep, abiding dependence on Him in everything. In that sense, we pray, or we have the spirit of prayer, continuously. The second thing is praying without ceasing means praying repeatedly, praying often. Again, that does not mean that we are verbally or even mentally speaking to God for every second of every day. It's not possible. But we should pray over and over and often. Our default mental state should be prayer. We should be working on that continual fellowship with God. <clears throat> I apologize, my allergies are killing me. <laughs> but third, praying without ceasing means not giving up on prayer. Don't ever come to a point in your life where you give up on prayer, where you stop praying. Don't ever abandon the God of hope and say, there's, there's no use. Go on praying. Don't cease. Jesus commands us to pray in this way in Luke 11, 9, and 10. So I say to you, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who searches finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. I went through this passage when I was in seminary and we had these, we had these classes, they're called hybrids, and for, they were online for most of the class and then you'd have one weekend a semester where it was 18 hours of class over two days and it was brutal and I had this New Testament class and we were going through this passage and it just like clicked for the first time. It just blew my mind, <coughs> that blew my mind that this is the way that we are to go to God in prayer. It's not just saying that we can pray. It's not just saying that if you're going through something or whatever, you can go to God. He will listen to you. We can go to God, and God wants us to come to him repeatedly and often. It's, it's so easy for me. I don't know about you, but it's definitely easy for me to just think, like, here I am, this small person in a big world, and I don't... You know, God's just going to come with my problem. He's just going to think that I'm a bother or that I'm annoying, that our problems are too small or that we ourselves are just, I mean, how important is one person in the grand scheme of everything? And it's, it's easy for me to get in my head about these things. But Jesus says, no, keep searching, keep knocking, don't cease praying. It's crazy to me. And it's so exciting when I was in that seminary class and it was just opened up to me. I was like, oh my goodness, I am to go to God over and over. And he wants me to. He wants that relationship. He wants that fellowship. If we truly expect that God is going to answer our prayers, then we had better learn to pray with such tenacity and persistence that we don't allow anything to hinder us bringing even our boldest requests to God. I mean, the, the fact that Paul commands us to pray in this manner reveals two significant truths about prayer. The first is that God wants to hear from you. I mean, think about that. 
the God of the universe wants to hear from you. And second, if God expects that you will ask him for things, then he also has the ability to give us the things that we ask for. And think about your most pressing needs, your most formidable opponents, even your most out-of-reach dreams. If God desires that you bring these matters before him, then you can be sure that he has more than enough ability to do something about them. As Jeremiah so aptly puts it, nothing is too difficult for God. Now, of course, don't get me, don't get me wrong here. This is not saying that we just pray for things and then boom, they just happen like magic and we can just get whatever we want as long as we pray for it or pray hard enough for it. Everyone who asks receives does not mean that believers always receive every single thing they ask for. And that's good because God is a lot wiser than we are. And he has better plans for his children than we could ever imagine. But as we continue to pray and we continue to rejoice, God is at work in us. We change. Our prayers become longing for God's will, desiring to live out his will in our lives, reaching out to him for guidance and help and encouragement. And what a joy it is to know that we can do that and that we're not a bother, that he wants us to call out to him. Never give up looking to him for help, and come to him repeatedly and often. Make that default mental state of our minds a Godward longing. Charles Spurgeon put it perfectly when he said, the more we pray, the more we rejoice. Prayer gives a channel to the pent-up sorrows of the soul. They flow away, and in their place, streams of sacred delight pour into the heart. At the same time, the more rejoicing, the more praying. Observe, however, what immediately follows in the text. Give thanks in everything. When joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. And so we see that we rejoice always, and we pray without ceasing. And then in verse 18, we see that we are to give thanks in all circumstances. We are to be grateful in attitude. At first look, this can appear to be a very unusual command. Given how tough life is and life can be, we might wonder how could it even be possible for a person to give thanks in everything? And while we may con concede that need to give thanks for some things, certainly we give thanks for some things, we would also question the, the legitimacy of giving thanks for all things. And when we read the verse carefully, we might be surprised to see Paul says that we are to give thanks in everything, not for everything. And that in, this imperative speaks more about our perspective towards life than it does about our attitude towards each individual circumstance. To obey this command, we must keep the big picture in view. And to keep the big picture in view, we must understand how God's providence works. J.I. Packer defines providence as the unceasing activity of the Creator, whereby in overflowing bounty and goodwill, He upholds His creatures in ordered existence, guides and governs all events, circumstances, and free acts of angels and men, and directs everything to its appointed goal for His own glory. Only God 
could take the thousands of details in a person's life and weave them into a beautiful tapestry of His perfect plan. From the human perspective, many of life's occurrences, especially the painful ones, can appear to have little intrinsic value. However, if we had God's perspective, we would be able to view each of these details in a different way. Providence affirms that no detail is irrelevant or insignificant. God is using everything for our ultimate good and His everlasting glory. And so to give thanks in everything is to affirm our resolute belief that God is overseeing every detail of our lives. And we recognize God's sovereign hand is in charge, not blind fate or chance, but God is in control. Paul, by no accident, concludes this verse by reminding us that such an attitude is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What more could please the Heavenly Father than for Him to know that we trust Him so much that we are willing to live each moment in a constant state of thankfulness? Up until now, there hasn't been a distinctively Christian word spoken in this text. And so the last part of verse 18, it is a decisive phrase. It is enormously important here in tying this passage together and for in all of the New Testament. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Seeking to do good to one another and to everyone with no malice. With a joyful, prayerful, thankful spirit. Because why? Because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Not just the will of God, but the will of God in Christ Jesus. And we ask, well, what exactly does that mean? As believers, we are in Christ. Don't take that for granted. This is huge. It is breathtaking what it means to be in Christ. United to Christ. Bound to Christ. This is the phrase in the text that changes everything. In Christ Jesus, believers are given grace before the world was created. They are chosen by God before creation, are loved by God with an inseparable love. In Christ Jesus, believers are redeemed and forgiven of our sins. We are justified before God, and the righteousness of God in Christ was imputed to us. Believers become a new creation and sons of God. We will be seated in the heavenly place. All of the promises of God are yes for us. We are sanctified and made holy. Everything that we needed was supplied. The peace of God guards our hearts and our minds. We gain eternal life and we will be raised from the dead at the coming of the Lord. All because we are in Christ Jesus. All those that are united to Adam in the first humanity die, and all those who are united to Christ in the the new humanity rise to live again. And so, yes, this Thanksgiving and always, we can rejoice always, we can pray without ceasing, and we can give thanks in all circumstances. Yes, we can, as that large larger portion of chapter 5 calls us to admonish the unruly and encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak and be patient with all, and we can do all of that with a joyful, prayerful, thankful heart 
And all of this has its roots in Christ. This is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. This is the fruit of the union with Christ. Because when we are in Christ, we are able to do God's will for Christ's sake. That thought here is not that this is God's will, so you must do it. The thought is this is God's will, so you can do it. You couldn't do this on your own. But with God, you can because this is God's will. And it is not easy to rejoice always and to pray without ceasing and to give thanks in everything. But we can do it because it is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. And for us, the wonderful news is that being in Christ is a gift for all who believe in Christ. You don't earn it. You receive it through faith. As John 1.12 says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so we are in Christ Jesus. These three commands penetrate the innermost recesses of, of human personality. The spring from which all of our, that outward obedience flows. If the source is contaminated, then fulfillment of God's will in the outward matters of our life, it's not, it's not possible. And such is the note sounded by Jesus in his own teaching. True victories in life for Christians come to those who are joyful, prayerful, and thankful. And so as we go into thanksgiving and, and beyond, let us be these things. Joyful in our outlook. Because we find our joy not in the fleeting pleasures of this world, but because we find our joy in Christ. We find our hope and our assurance in Christ. And let us be persistent in prayer as we remain in continual personal fellowship with God, as we are in His presence throughout each day, and as we rely on Him throughout each day. And let us be grateful in attitude, because as we grow in our walk with Jesus, we see the grace and the mercy that he has shown us. We see the hope that we have in him because of the gospel. We are grateful because we know that we are sinners deserving the wrath of God, that there's nothing that we could have done to earn salvation, and that Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh. He lived the perfect life that we never could. He died on the cross for our sins, not just dying a physical death, but taking on the wrath of God for our sins that we had earned. And he rose from the grave as only God can. And when we turn from our sin and we trust in Jesus, we can be saved. And as we see that, this is the ultimate reason for us to be thankful this Thanksgiving. On our own merits, we have no business being saved, no, no business with salvation. But we are, have salvation in Christ, and for that we can be grateful in everything, in all circumstances. And we can do all of these, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances, because it is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, as we 
come to you this morning, God, we pray that you help us to do these things. God, help us to rejoice always. We pray that you help us to rejoice always when everything is going great. And help us to rejoice not in ourselves or even even in our circumstances, but help us to rejoice in you. And we pray that you help us to rejoice always when everything is fine, okay. Help us to not become complacent, but instead to rejoice in you, to remember your grace and your provision. And help us to rejoice always, even during difficult times. Help us to remember that our joy is in Christ, not in our circumstances which change, but in you who does not. And help us to remember that we can always come to you through anything we face. Help us to pray without ceasing, to have every moment of the day fellowship with you, coming to you with our needs and our desires and our troubles and our joys. Help us to give thanks in all circumstances. As we go through life, God, we pray that you help us to remember that we are in Christ, that we didn't deserve that, that we couldn't have earned that. And help us to remember that being in Christ means that we are bound to him, that we are united to him. Help us to give thanks in everything, day after day, as we remember and and pray that we remember that as believers, that this is our reality. In Jesus' name, amen. As the band comes up now, I do want to say, if you have questions about the sermon or you have questions about salvation, about being in Christ. If the Lord has softened your heart and and you have heard his voice, let today be the day of salvation. And if if you're here and you have something in your life, even that maybe you don't have a question about the sermon or a question about salvation, but you have something that you would like prayer over, you can text us or email us at connect at seafordbaptist.com and we will get right back with you. But also, I'm right here, Pastor Ben is here, Pastor Michael is here. Come and talk to us. We would love to talk to you. We love those conversations. And so if, if any of those things are, are on your mind right now, prayer or, or salvation or, or questions about the sermon, come and talk to us, and we would love to talk to you about that.